0: Grace to you and peace from God the Father, who instructs us to listen to his Son Jesus. And from Jesus Christ, whose transfiguration revealed that his power and glory and grace was present, and he also was illuminating himself as their mentor. And God the Holy Spirit, who anoints prophets and people with himself, and has given the Holy Christian church and the communion of saints to care for and mentor each other as they are called. So on this Transfiguration Sunday, you may be thinking, Pastor, it's Transfiguration Sunday. What on earth are you talking about mentoring for? That's a good question. I suppose the answer is that we're still on earth, and that's part of why the Transfiguration happened. He is teaching us, mentoring us, raising us up. We will be visiting that transfiguration text uh, throughout the message, but our primary text is in the second Kings passage read earlier. This is verses 11 and 12. And they still went on and talked. And behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha cried out, My father, my father the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So the names of the prophets Elijah and Elisha kind of slide off our tongue. Uh, they kind of go together like peanut butter and jelly, I think, not just because their names are similar, but they follow to each other sequentially, and they actually serve together for a time. Elijah mentoring Elisha. This is not typical. It is atypical, but it is not completely unheard of. You've heard of Moses mentoring Joshua. and Of course, in the New Testament, Paul mentoring Timothy and others. And of course, Jesus and his disciples. That relationship was far more than just mentoring, but it was certainly mentoring for three years. It's important to remember that how and why this original relationship between Elijah and Elisha was established. You may remember the epic account of 1 Kings chapter 18, another account that involved fire coming from heaven, where Elijah had the great showdown with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, his female alleged consort. If you're an odds maker you look at those numbers and they don't sound good for Elijah. But that of course is part of the story and that's part of the mentoring. So to make this medium length story even shorter, you know what happens Uh, all day long. The prophets of Baal call out their God. He doesn't do anything, he's no God. Then Elijah prays, uh, pours water all over the offering and prays that God would send fire. He does. It burns up everything, including the actual altar, the stones, the water, the sacrifice, all of it. The end of that dramatic display of God's power was a confession, a confession that the people knew. They knew by heart, and they said in unison, similar to the way we confess the Apostles' Creed, but maybe a little bit shorter and more exuberant, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God instantaneous conversion of thousands of people who witnessed this, um, and yet I don't think that confession lasted too long. So the next part of the story is where we get the whole entrance of Elisha into the picture. Up to that point, we haven't heard the name Elisha. And when Elijah goes to the capital city of the Northern Ten Tribes, which is actually Jezreel, not Samaria at this time. And he is running before the king, the wicked king Ahab, as a sign that I am your servant, not your enemy. So important. When he finally arrives in Jezreel, he meets the Sidonian queen. She was not even Israelite or from Judah. She was from Sidon, and she did not believe in Yahweh. And sadly, this wonderful prophet who had the courage to stand up to 850 false prophets didn't have the courage to stand up to this queen. And Elijah's faith shrinks away and he runs for his life, about 400 miles actually, south to Mount Sinai, where he remembered that Moses and God met where God gave the covenant and the commandments. In that journey, and when he finally reaches the destination, Elijah confesses his weak faith, his exhaustion, and also confesses his faith, which is part of the story. He is running to God, not away from him, like Jonah. And Elijah's confession, which is literally this, takes another form later, but this is what he says on the journey. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life. I am no better than my fathers. And by the way, we are reminded in the transfiguration that it followed a similar success and failure from St. Peter. Remember St. Peter in Matthew 16, 16, also in the Gospel of Mark, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a great successful confession that was followed by the epic failure of faith, where Peter tried to talk Jesus out of being the Christ. No, you don't want to go to the cross. That's not for you. That was Jesus' primary mission. Clearly a weak and narrow faith. And Jesus named him for it, Satan. Get behind me. So even though Peter and the other apostles would have great moments of success and faithfulness, they also were, like Elijah, weak in their faith, afraid to bear witness, running away from enemies. Floundering and floundering in your faith, and sometimes even failure, are part of being Christians or Christian leaders. That may be one of the main lessons from today. Even Elijah, courageous Elijah, had weak faith at times. So after Elijah confesses his sin to God at the mountain, God basically says in so many words, get back to work. And he forgives him through that commission, and he gives him three specific tasks. He says, okay, I want you to anoint Hazel king over the land of Aram, wasn't even you know, God's people, but God is in charge of them. And anoint Yehu king over Israel. And anoint Elisha as prophet who will eventually succeed and replace you. That's actually the order that it came in. God didn't say he had to follow that order, but guess which one Elijah did first? The last. Yes, I want that guy Elisha to be my helper. When you are really fatigued, when you are really drained, when you are really focused on your failures, you know, if you're wise, that you need help. And so Elijah went for the thing that he thought he needed most. I need somebody. I cannot do this alone. The interesting thing is he actually met Jesus on the way to Mount Sinai. And I don't know if that was in the back of his mind, but Jesus in the angel of the Lord, that was Jesus' name in the Old Testament, was the one who gave him that food that sustained him for 40 days, and we remember the same thing happened to Moses. He probably was remembering that incredible meal, that power that he felt by the compassion of Christ when Christ said, the journey is too much for you. And he wanted more of that. And indeed, Elisha would give them more of that. So this is a key part of the transfiguration. Jesus is clearly revealing himself on this day as being Lord, Master, and King. And yet he serves us. This idea of Elijah being a great, powerful prophet of God and also a servant is clearly who our Lord is. He is transfigured, we see a portion of the glory of God, not the full glory of Christ, but we see a portion of it, certainly greater than what he had revealed before, and yet we know that this week, we're going to go into Lent. This brightness of epiphany will suddenly be shrouded in the service of our Savior, Jesus, who doesn't just wash feet, but he will wash away our sins on Good Friday. Things are going to get very dark for him but that's part of the transfiguration mentoring. I am both God and servant. So as Jesus would reveal to St. Paul, who also was burdened and prayed three times that God would eliminate the thorn from his flesh, Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected. In weakness. Sometimes God allows leaders to be physically weak, physically burdened, because we know that when we're burdened, then we must turn to God for strength. When we are weak, we are strong. And so Elijah, not necessarily freed from his burdens, went off, anointed Elisha, and began to mentor him and mentored him through showing him service. He served that guy Ahab, that wicked king, that murderer, that coveter, that idolater. And one of the things that I think he mentored him in is that things are not always the way they appear, and numbers are not always the true measure of God's kingdom. You may remember back in chapter 18 when Elijah had his big crisis and went to Mount Sinai, he had this sort of confession worked out, and the confession included the phrase, I am the only one left. Now, you know, Elijah knew that wasn't really true. He had just met Obadiah before he met King Ahab in the big showdown, and Obadiah said, You know, I've been protecting a hundred prophets in these caves. What a way for the people of God to live, right? (laughs) God's prophets living in caves, eating bread and drinking water. What a lifestyle. God invites us by carrying a cross sometimes. When you are overwhelmed, like Elijah, you typically feel very alone. And he was expressing, I think, how he felt. Even though there were 100 prophets that he knew were out there, there were more. They were named elsewhere. They were scattered. They weren't necessarily meeting in regular, uh, you know, winkle conferences like pastors meet. And then God also reminded Elijah, it's bigger than that. And he gave him a number. There are 7,000 who have remained faithful to me and have not bowed the knee to Baal. So another lesson for everyone is that the kingdom of God is bigger than what it appears, and numbers do not mean everything. When Elijah went back, and he had to do the hard work of being a prophet and confronting uh, Ahab, this time he had to confront Ahab as a supporter. And he and another prophet went to Ahab and said, God is going to give you victory so you know I'm God. So not only do we have this great showdown, but now you have another example, winning a military victory, which would be important to a king, especially when the king is outnumbered about 130,000 to 7,000. And that's what happened. Ahab was supposed to go to war with Aram, and they mustered their troops, and guess how many showed up? 7,000. I draw a line between the 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal and the 7,000 who had the courage to fight the battle against a vastly unnumbered, outnumbered army because the people of God know that numbers don't really tell the whole story. I mean, how many are we worshiping? How many people are in worship in the county? The last number I saw, which is now about 15 years old, was 9%. And that included Jews and Muslims. (laughs) You are vastly outnumbered. But that's the church. That was the church in Elijah's day. I mean, that's less than 1% if you crunch the numbers. In Elijah's day, 7,000, way less than 1% but they're the faithful. They're the courageous. They fight the battles and they're the people that God uses. And Elijah had to share that message with Elisha and he saw it pan out in the subsequent chapters. So, one more thing we've got to share about this business of supporting Elijah. Uh, excuse me, supporting King Ahab is the story of Naboth's vineyard also follows the great showdown. Now, if you know anything about this story, I'll make it short. Ahab the king saw a vineyard belonging to this guy named Naboth. It was a really nice vineyard. He wanted it for himself. Like a preschooler, he pounded. Gosh, I really want that bitter. He won't give it to me. Jezebel, his infamous wife, said, well, you know, you're the king. You can do whatever you want. Raised up some false witnesses. They stoned Naboth. And Ahab took his lovely vineyard. And then God said to the prophets, go confront him, which Elijah did. And Elijah said in that confrontation that God was going to make him childless and he would die and dogs would lick up his wife's blood. Ahab was broken and contrite. He tore his robes, and it was genuine because God saw right to his heart and told Elijah, Do you see what's going on here? He said, I'm going to cut some slack to Ahab, and I'm not going to do this right away. This is a guy who's a murderer. He's led 99% of the people away from God, and God has given him grace. This is another astonishing mentoring lesson. Well, Ahab's repentance was short-lived, and so was Ahab. But God gives us time to grow. And even though God had given Ahab a long time to grow, years and years and years, And there was that one glimmering picture of his genuine repentance. God was also doing the same thing for Elijah. Remember I said that Elijah went back to the very same woman that he was afraid of and ran 400 miles to get away from? He had grown in faith. And he was teaching Elisha, your faith can grow. Look at me, I was afraid of this woman, and now I went face to face with her. God is gracious to us. And I'm sure the transfiguration was a huge catalyst for the growth of faith for Peter, James, and John. And so they probably told that story, as Jesus instructed to do after he rose from the dead. And we know that that particular account of the transfiguration appears in three of the four Gospels. And God, through the Holy Spirit, gives them the freedom to be creative, And Matthew, Mark, and Luke each recorded slightly differently. And I want to read one verse from each of those Gospels. From Matthew 17, 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. From the Gospel of St. Luke. And while he was praying, the appearance of his faith became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And from the Gospel of Mark, today's Gospel. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. My translation says, as no launderer on earth could launder them. Isaiah has a verse, I think, that applies to both the Old Testament and the transfiguration. Isaiah 45:15. Truly thou art a God who hides himself, O God of Israel and Savior. On the transfiguration, he's not hiding. But how many other people got to see that? Three living men. And then they had to tell the story. Matthew mentions his face shining like the sun. I think... He's emphasizing creation and the creator. Jesus is the creator who created the son. Luke mentions Jesus' face becoming different and then has shades of heaven. God is the one who will transform us and take us to heaven. He is the creator of heaven and earth. And then Luke emphasizes redemption. His clothes were cleaner than any launderer on earth could clean them. Jesus is the one who washes our dirty robes in his blood and makes them white, the book of Revelation says. Elijah mentored Elisha. Jesus was mentoring his disciples, and he was also their Messiah. He was redeeming them. The way that things appear is not necessarily the way that they are. Isaiah said, God hides himself. Sometimes God hides himself by allowing unbridled evil in nations like Aram or in Ahab or in other nations that we witness today. But we also know that God is hiding his patience and long suffering when he allows that to go on. He is there, he's just hiding. We want the transfiguration to happen every day. We want God to show power everywhere. But look at how long that repentance lasted in the Old Testament. Enduring repentance happens with a broken and contrite heart that trusts God and Him alone for forgiveness. Jesus was teaching the disciples about a forgiveness that would not fade away. Jesus hid himself in many ways, on the cross. That's really God up there in my place? Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians, that's really God up there. They crucified the Lord of glory. That's God dying for you. God is carrying the sins of the whole world. He is the Lamb of God. And God also hides himself by being patient with you and me and allowing us to grow. And finally, we reach the end of the mentoring, today's Old Testament story. Elisha wants twice as much spirit as Elijah had, not to be powerful, but to be faithful. And Elijah says, if you see me go, then you will receive that answered prayer. And of course, he sees the chariots of fire. He sees him go. The mantle falls, he places the mantle on himself and uses that mantle in his ministry. Elisha would have a double portion, and he would have that vision of his friend and father and master going up into heaven and his body being changed into the glorious body that shows up at the transfiguration. How did Elisha's life end? Was there a chariot of fire? There was a sick bed. He died a long, drawn-out, diseased death. What do you think he had in his mind when he was near death? I know what's going to happen. Things are not always as they appear. God is here. God still loves me. God's given me strength. He's given me a chance to grow in the midst of this cross. And one day... I will see him in glory. That's God's promise to us. As he mentors us and say, listen to me. Amen. Now, by the peace of God, which goes beyond what we understand, stand guard of our hearts and minds to keep us strong in Christ our Savior and Lord. Amen.